0: Thursday, May 17th, 2012. Tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. In fact, you can almost make an argument that it's like a viral outbreak of really bad teaching that's going on in the church today. And so what we're doing is taking what people say and comparing it to God's Word in context to see if that squares with what Scripture teaches, what God has revealed in His Word. It's Listen, truth is knowable, and God's Word is understandable, and it's sufficient. And so no pastor actually is wanting for, um, well, material on a Sunday morning. It's real simple. You teach the full counsel of the Word of God when you're done doing that you start at the beginning and then you do it again and then when you're done with that you start over and then you do it again and you're thinking well if that's what i do then you know where's the creative part you know where i get to kind of you know you know make myself you know you know tell people what they want you know see that's the thing you don't get to do that you see you've been given a job pastor And scripture makes it clear your job is to, well, preach the word in season, out of season. You know, that's when people, and that's the idea behind the whole in season and out of season. It's this idea that there's going to be times when preaching God's word, it's going to catch fire and people are going to want to hear it. And people are going to come from far and wide to hear God's word rightly preached. It's, it's like getting a cold drink of water in the middle of a desert. And then there's times when, for whatever reason, um, you know, people don't want to hear it. They've heard it. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear what they want to hear, and they don't want to hear about your God who's shoving his values down their throat, and you, you get what I'm saying. And so regardless of what's going on out there, whether or not preaching the word is going to make you popular or get you killed, well, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. It's plain and simple. I mean, if I were to use a, a you know, like a, an old school military, you know, metaphor here, um, I like the civil war. It's, it's um, just happens to be historically one of my, well, favorite studies, uh, subject to study. I mean, um, when I get opportunities to go to Civil War battle sites, I don't turn those opportunities down. Um, if my wife would allow me, I'd probably join one of those, you know, reenactment regiments. But <laughs> there's just no way to justify such a thing. Anyway, but <clears throat> sorry, too much information. But the, so the idea is this: is that you know, if you were alive during the Civil War and you you know decided that you were going to, you know, enlist with one of the armies, North or South. And then you were stationed in a particular region and it just so happened that the the opposing army came into town and you guys decided to duke it out, um, you know, Civil War style. Uh, You know, you think about it this way, it's kind of, you know, it it was a bad war for this very reason, that they were using old military tactics with modern technology uh, developed for warfare. So they hadn't adjusted their tactics to go along with the anyway you, you get what I'm saying so the idea is this is that your your commander would come to you and say your job is to hold this piece of ground under any and all circumstances that your job is to hold this ground and so you know you know what they would do is they you'd have long lines of of uh, soldiers, you know, if you think about the Battle of Gettysburg, you know, the, the, the fishhook formation that was there and uh, that the uh, Union Army was able to uh, secure. And so there were guys who were told, you know, you, you're you to hold the little round top, you're to hold this property, you're to hold this this line, period. And so it doesn't matter if the enemy comes at you or not. Your job's to hold that line, so if the enemy comes you 're shooting and you 're holding that you 're holding that- par- that property If the enemy doesn 't come then you 're just sit there and occupy it that 's the idea, so preach the word in season and out of season um, that means that there 's going to be times of uh, exponential growth in uh, in the kingdom of God in Christianity, and then there 's going to be times of major decline. Where preaching God's word rightly, well, it's going to result in people saying, that's it, I'm out of here. And what's your job then, pastor? Uh, Preach the word. You see, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter whether people listen to you or not, pastor. Your job's to preach the word. That's the idea. And so, but nowadays people are going, it's not working anymore. (laughs) I'm preaching the word and and people are throwing tomatoes at me. They're not supposed to do that. (laughs) Yeah, actually, there's times when that's going to happen. It's, see, listen, what God does with his word preached, whether he judges people with it or brings them to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that's really his business. See your job's to preach the word it, regardless of what's going on out there. You are to preach the anyway, does it sound like I'm just beating a drum here? <laughs> one one bum 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 bum, you know, preach the word. Bum yeah, that's what. I, anyway, so that's the idea. So it doesn't matter if uh, heretics are getting are getting huge mega churches and driving around in Mercedes-Benzes or Bentleys or Rolls-Royces and have uh, you know, private jets and things like that the job of a christian pastor is to preach the word bum bum yeah so yeah it doesn't matter if you, your your congregation shrinks down to the size where you can't afford your building your job is to well preach the word you get what i'm saying anyway <laughs> And listen, this is not my idea. This is what God's word says. Just call me silly, call me foolish, call me uh, old school, you know, just, you know, don't call me late to dinner. But the the point is, is regardless of what you're going to call me, that's what God's word says. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, um, for a time is coming, the Apostle Paul prophesying uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when people will not endure sound doctrine. But will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And when that happens, what's the job of a Christian pastor? You're right. It's preach the word. See, it doesn't matter if there's big churches out there that are having, you know, that are scratching people's ears. That's not success in the kingdom of God. The job of a pastor is to, you know, preach the word. Yes, <laughs> plan. And if your pastor isn't doing that. Um, you probably need to leave that church because your pastor's not doing his job, and if he's not doing his job, well, there's some problems, and we'll get into that a little bit today. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got a little bit of email that I want to get to today. One of them actually was a a, a Twitter <clears throat> tweet. I still hate that word, by the way. A Twitter tweet that was sent to me on Twitter, um, from a, a listener. I want to attack that, Um, and uh, there's another email I want to read as well. Um, I've got an update regarding Pastor Dana. Apparently, she's called in the big guns. Uh, Bishop Randy White, former husband of Paula White. They're now divorced. Um, uh, What's really funny is he's kind of looking (laughs) – he doesn't quite have the spit and polish that he's had in the past. He's looking a little haggard in his – I mean, I mean, I dress like this. I mean, just black t shirt. I mean, anyway, you know, it's kind of weird, you know, maybe he's, you know, not quite up to snuff, but he, he's been flown in. He's, he's, he's been flown in to rescue Pastor Dana. And so we're going to take a look at that. I've got a third eagle of the apocalypse, uh, apocalypse update. I have got a blog post that I've written called, Are You Spiritually Mature or Immature? You know it's funny as I follow the seeker-driven uh, Twitterverse, uh, all seeker-driven pastors and you know folks like that. I mean, they, I mean they send out tweets like Jesus didn't die for correct theology, man. You know, and and, and they talk, you know, they kind of t- always tearing down the concept of sound biblical doctrine. Well, we're going to answer the question: Are you spiritually mature or immature? Using the Bible's definition of spiritual maturity. Did you know that the Bible actually defines who somebody who is spiritually mature? It's absolutely true. And this is not based on my opinion. This is based on what God has revealed. So we're going to, we're going to take a look. Are you spiritually mature or are you immature? And we're going to look at the categories that God, the Holy Spirit has revealed as to how we're to understand spiritual maturity as opposed to spiritual immaturity and uh, seeker driven pastors you may want to take notes anyway um and then let's see here um there is a uh, yep there's a um a op-ed piece written by Kevin DeYoung he's been writing a few of them in fact i'm a little bit behind at this point but he w- wrote one a couple of days ago called if we believe if we believe all the same things why do our churches seem so different this is going to be a good uh op-ed piece to pass along to you he also wrote one that was published today regarding uh what the bible teaches regarding homosexuality, and I think i'm gonna try to tackle that one in a soon uh an upcoming a soon upcoming edition of fighting for the faith and so um with all of that we're going to uh to dive into the program proper which uh, requires me to do well this. You know, I'm convinced if somebody were typing a tweet using this music in the background, they would have run out of characters a long time ago. (laughs) Maybe I need Twitter message music. No, let's not. That would complicate everything. Okay, Jacob writes uh, via Twitter. He says, um, Chris, he says, I'm a lay leader, and, and I preach four times a year, and, uh, well, the summer movie series is one of those times that I preach every year. I- I'm not a fan, but it's my time to preach any advice. Boy, this is... <laughs> all right. All um, right, Jacob, let's just assume for a moment that you're actually qualified to be preaching, that you have the right, you've studied and shown yourself approved, and that even though you are technically not paid uh, staff there that you're qualified to preach, let's assume that's the case, um, then let's go with this idea. You have two choices at this point. point, two, okay? Um, one is to, uh, to basically take this head on, and the other is to be passive-aggressive and um and i say it that way because that's really what it would turn into being okay you can be subversive in kind of a passive aggressive kind of way which probably isn't the best route to take but let's talk about the 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 head hit you know basically hit it head on idea here so here's what you should do if you were to take this head on you go to your pastor and you say pastor i've been reading the pastoral epistles you know second timothy chapter 4 The apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells pastors, tells Pastor Timothy, as for you, you know, in light of, you know, Christ appearing in his kingdom, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with, you know, patience and teaching, and basically say, listen, here's the deal. Um, I cannot and will not do a sermon or deliver a sermon based upon a movie, because that's contrary to what God's Word commands pastors to do. Can't do it, won't do it, and and then what you do is you just sit there quietly and wait for him to process. Okay? And so the idea here is, is that you're basically saying, this is what God's Word says. I don't see how this is scriptural. I can't do it and won't do it. Now, understand this. That if you go that route, the direct open route, then, you know, which by the way is probably the way you should go, there's a good chance that your pastor is going to blow a gasket. There's a good chance that the head pastor at your church is going to basically, you know, say, what? And it could cost you. It could cost you so much that you could be drummed out of that church or basically lose the ability to teach, you know, the four times a year that you do. Okay. Um and that's the cost of taking a principled stance. Um I've faced similar challenges myself in you know in in the course of my teaching career in the church over the past 20 years. But you've got to be up front and you've got to stand on what scripture says. Now, that's the direct route, which is probably um from a conscience point of view, the right way to go because keep in mind you're already Starting you know, through the tweet that you've sent me, you are already showing and demonstrating that you're not sure you can do this, that you're not sure you're in agreement with what's going on, okay? And I would think of passages that talk about the fact that whatever isn't done in faith is a sin, okay? If you can't do this without going against your conscience, you can't do it. So you need to go to your pastor and basically say, listen, this isn't right, this isn't right. God's word tells us that we are to preach the word and summer movie season is not doing that. okay So um, that's that's the route I would take. You got to take it straight up. you gotta you gotta it, it, listen, it's a principled stand based upon a clear passage. That's just the way it is. and it could cost you. Now, um, they might ask you to sit out, you know f- just for that particular sermon. You know, you'll have to deal with that if that's the solution. Now, the passive-aggressive way of doing this, the subversive way of doing this, which I'm not recommending in this particular uh, in this particular case, would basically you know agree to preach the sermon, and you would have no choice at that point but to find a way to hook it back into clear passages, uh, and let the movie drive uh, the sermon. You know, dictate which. Which themes, which you know doctrines, if any, are being addressed um and and then basically doing your darndest to circle it back and boldly preach the word. it can be done um but that's kind of missing the point of the whole summer movie sermons, isn't it? You know, spiritual themes, really the way they translate from the pastors who do this kind of stuff. Is that you're, you're expected to basically look for spiritual principles that people can apply to their lives today, you know, relevant life tip kind of stuff. Um, you know, so you understand what I'm saying. It's one of those things where um, scripture clearly tells us what a pastor's to be doing. I don't see any way around that. If uh, you decide to go the other route, um, you know, that's problematic at best and uh you're you're just trying to make the best of a bad situation and to preach the word um but it still doesn't address the root issue and the root issue is is that the church that you're attending that you're a lay leader in um isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing and uh i i know that sounds like just like a hard line i mean come on i can hear some of you going come on chris really serious i mean you know people can preach biblical doctrine out of movies you see the whole thing is backwards don't you think because here's the deal when i teach in the church there are times when i make m- m- allusions to movies it happens um you know f- in fact i think back to uh, the lecture that i delivered last week you know resistance is futile um you know i i used you know a metaphor you know to kind of to kind of frame the uh, the topic and what we were discussing you um, quoting the movie The Silence of the Lambs. But see, in that particular case, the metaphor was serving the topic that I was, uh, you know, preaching or not preaching, but teaching on um, rather than the other way around. I wasn't exegeting The Silence of the Lambs. I just pulled out a snippet of it so that, you know, people can go, oh, OK, yeah, I understand what he's trying to say here. Uh, the problem with movie sermons is, is that the movies are put in the driver's seat. Not God's Word. They're the one, they're the, They're driving the topic, not God's Word. And see, all Scripture is God-breathed. No movies are God-breathed. They may be inspirational, but they're not inspired. Okay, you, you get what I'm saying? And yeah, there are some movies out there that lend themselves more to discussing biblical topics... Uh, than others. I mean, you know, for instance, it's it's possible using the stories from the Lord of the Rings to talk about Christian allegory and how the the gospel in Christian allegory is just right, right below the surface. There's gospel themes and stuff like that. But see, in a situation like that, um, a topic of that nature is best served or best delivered, not from the pulpit during sermon time on Sunday mornings, but more or less in, you know, maybe a class discussion. You know, it, it is as you know a bizarre topic that you you know you want to circle back and discuss, um you know maybe during an apologetics lecture or a Sunday school class or something like that, but um the the whole idea behind movie sermons is well we've got to make we've got to make our church relevant we've got to make our because you know there's people out there that are, that are seeking God and and we've got we've got to lower the bar lower the standard to get them in well that's Uh, that's not what the uh, church service is about. Church services, okay, when the church gathers, the church has business to tend to. And the business to tend to is preaching the word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, and fellowship. None of those are evangelistic. Okay, there's a time and a place for evangelism in the sense of, you know, purposefully and intentionally reaching out with the gospel to people who are not believers. Okay. But that's not the primary function of the, uh, uh, of the church service. Now, pagans are welcome to attend if they want to come and hear God's word, they're welcome to come and attend. But the purpose of, of the, the when the church gathers is the building up of disciples. It's see. A lot of people take the idea, you know, in the seeker-driven concept or in this evangelical way of doing church, which isn't really church, that the idea is, is that go and make disciples means just new disciples. Making disciples, that's a lifelong process, okay? Once somebody is brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the work begins. It doesn't end. And these guys never get past, never get past the uh, the making new disciples, uh, and you know, they never get past that task to actually preaching the word, building people up in the faith, teaching sound doctrine, rebuking those who contradict it. So as a result of it, they're constantly and chronically off topic. So the idea that you know that you know that your church has summer movie season preaching kind of thing. You got some bigger problems there and that is, is that you know they're methodologically not in sync with what the church does when it gathers on a Sunday morning and what the purpose of that church service is it that is not primarily evangelism time in that church and those church services are not technically for unbelievers it's for the building up of the body of Christ through the preaching of the word so you've got you've got a problem here and um, neither solution is... Um, is well, let, let me put it this way. One is um, is one that at the end of the day, you're going to be able to go, regardless of the cost, that's the principled to stand to stand on. Um, and it might cost you something. The other one, you, well, it may not cost you anything as far as your ability to preach and teach in the future. Um, you know, but... Um, You still have to wrestle with the idea that the whole concept is backwards and contrary to what God's Word teaches. So you haven't got an easy solution in front of you, but I just wanted to weigh in on that. Okay, another email uh, that I wanted to get to. This one is from Aaron, and I'm not sure what town Aaron is from, but he says... Chris, thank you so much for the service and ministry that you provide. I've been listening to your program since hearing about it on Issues Etc. at the beginning of the year, and it's been a blessing. I've noticed an interesting phenomenon in many seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven sermons I've heard either on your program or during my time in the evangelical world several years ago. The standard expectation in these churches is for the pastor to fill up the first 20 to 25 minutes with an amalgamation of anecdotes, jokes, personal reflection, op-ed and videos and object lessons. This isn't surprising any longer. If it doesn't happen, it's a bit of a shock. But have you noticed how often words and phrases like, in the interest of time, I'll only read verses 1 and Two or I'm only going to read a few verses to keep this short. Crop up around the 25, you know, to 20 to 25 minute mark. Actually, uh, Aaron, yeah, I have noticed that, and that's one of the things I have commented on in the you know in the past during my sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith. And that's exactly you know what's going on. These guys, you know, they'll sit there and just you know diarrhea of the mouth, um, you know, just talking about nothing. And then when they finally get to the Bible, we get a couple of verses out of context. Where if they, they could have you know, taken the first twenty minutes to read maybe two chapters in a you know out of, you know in context from a particular section of scripture, but no, they don't have time to do that. Anyway, he says, uh when it's finally time to open up God's Word, uh prior to this, at no point has the pastor indicated that time is a concern. That's right. They have likely invested two to three minutes of time uh praise praising the band or another point of irony, two or three minutes leading the audience and giving God a hand and possibly five to ten minutes praising someone in the church. Time is an endless resource for these pastors as long as they're deflecting from their true responsibility, but... The moment it's time to read a passage from Scripture, whoa! There, the audience is is full of busy people with busy lives and wouldn't appreciate having their time spent hearing something they could read at home. Suddenly, time becomes a precious commodity, which must be used sparingly and for the sake of all in attendance. Give me a break, Aaron writes. He says, my family and I have joined the URCNA, I think that's the United Reformed Churches in America, uh, last year. And though it took a little while to grow accustomed to standing while whole chapters of Scripture are read... I now wouldn't have it any other way. Standing with my brothers and sisters in Christ to hear whole swaths of God's word read aloud by a commissioned minister of the gospel is both a privilege and a joy and not one to be taken lightly. How many nations in the world forbid this type of open display? It irks me to no end to hear pastors neglecting their responsibility to deliver the fullness of God's Word to their congregation and then justify it with an appeal to being considerate of their or everyone else's time. Thanks again for everything you do. Your show has provided me hours of entertainment, shock, laughter, and frustration. In other words, keep up the work. Your brother in Christ, Aaron. Aaron, thank you for the email, and you're absolutely right. I think, you know, we've got, you know, a lot of these churches have got everything backwards. Everything backwards, you know. They've got plenty of time for entertainment, for skits, for, you know, praising everybody else. And then when we finally get to God's word, oh, I don't want to take up everyone's time, one or two verses at most ripped out of context because all of a sudden time disappears. You're absolutely, absolutely right. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag, eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
2: Hey! Do you wanna feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst! Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity! Instant abundance! It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're gonna be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning preaching you'll be good at it it's a holy drink for men clergy these aren't your pastor's puns they are righteous puns piety puns sinner saint sinner saint prayers lights cross lights power lights more lights than your body has room for you'll be so holy mother teresa will be like slow down and be like no and roundhouse kicker in the face with your Bible b- pants. Yell you know, so much holiness, holiness. Uh, just praying all the time. Power, praying, power, preaching, power, praising, power, fasting, power, meditating, power, laughing, power, responding, chester. Yell you know, so much chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a and race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they'll get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gavel on your afterlife. Jesus! Try Bible Tours. The energy that will make you...
3: Uh, Holy! Uh, You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen. Probably around 8 hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For
0: more information about gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. That's G U N N A R S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. And thank you for your support. Bump up. We're back. Warning. We are to, well, have our pastors preach the word. That's their job. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need to be doing the same thing. Just a reminder: Fighting for the faith is listener-supported radio. And by the way, we are into we are well. The dreaded summer months have well started here, and uh, like I mentioned yesterday, fighting for the faith. Well, every summer, <laughs> it just happens. We, uh, you know, giving tapers off. Here's the problem: our bills don't taper off; <laughs> they continue to rise a little bit every month and uh, and so during the summer months things get really well dicey here uh, financially so uh, again i want to point out the fact that uh, one of the things i feel very strongly about is not charging people to access the archives of fighting for the faith um this is something that uh, you know business people have recommended that we do in order to shore up uh things here at fighting for the faith financially during you know to you know kind of steady things out And uh, this is one of those things where I keep putting my foot down and saying, no, we can't do that because uh, the people who, you know, when they discover our program, what they do is they end up going back through and listening to many past episodes of Fighting for the Faith. And if we only had like a week or two uh, for them to listen to, it would become cost prohibitive for them. And this is all about serving our neighbor through what we do here. So... That being the case, you know, we've, I've made the decision that we're, every summer, uh, we're gonna have financial tension here at Fighting for the Faith, and we are already thick into that. So if you are benefiting from this program and you don't already support us financially, please do so. This would be a great time to do it. The summer months are like they're a little bit of a financial train wreck here at Fighting for the Faith. And we truly could use your help to make it through the summer months as we continue to serve our neighbors here at Fighting for the Faith through what we do. So if you don't already support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it, $6.95 a month to uh, to support Fighting for the Faith. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038.
2: That's great. It starts, starts with, with an, earthquake. an earthquake. Birds and snakes in, in our, our brain. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane.
0: You know, it's been a while since we've done the third eagle of the apocalypse update. Speed
2: it up speed,
0: of the world as we know it. It's the end end of the world
4: as we know it.
0: It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. All right. Yeah, that's our third eagle of the apocalypse. Uh, William Tapley, a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith for (laughs) many a year now. Uh, He has... uh, quite the prolific YouTube channel over there at uh, youtube.com forward slash third eagle books. And uh, one of the things that apparently, um, well, the third eagle of the apocalypse is really gifted at is figuring out the numerology in the latest news headlines and uh, letting us know how that plays into the important topic of eschatology. By the way, this is, you know, William Tapley is kind of like a one of those uh tragic tales this is you know he's the example of this is you know this is what happens to you when you focus ex- you know on eschatology think you're hearing directly from god and not paying careful attention to what god's word says in context instead you allegorize spiritualize and try to find the hidden meaning in, and decipher the code if you would of the bible and the bible is not to be read that way but Anyway, nor is the news, but, well, here's William Tapley explaining the latest eschatological implications of the latest news stories. Here we go.
1: Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times.
0: Still haven't figured out who he's co-profiting with.
1: This is a follow-up to my last program, which was about that plane crash in Pakistan which killed 127 people. Yeah. And which was also a warning to President Barack Obama not to interfere with Israel's right to defend itself. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> really. I mean don't again I just uh, m- one of my standard lines when I ever I listen to a William Tapley update is if if God was trying to send a message to Barack Obama via a head a news headline don't you think he would have made it just a little bit more obvious <laughs> you know cuz when i saw the news headline you know about the pakistani plane crash i mean it it showed up on my ipad you know in flipboard and you know in my google reader and and you know i saw it and just flipped on ahead i mean nothing in the news headline jumped out at me to say Oh, wow, look at God's warning, Barack
1: Obama. I mean, he's been pwned here. Yeah. Now, since that program, I have come up with some very interesting statistics. I've done some research on the number of plane crashes going all the way back till 1970. And this is the only one out of 375 plane crashes, which involved 127 fatalities. Yeah. I've covered more than 140 different airlines. Yeah. And the number 127, as we know by now, is also unique in Bible prophecy. It is? That's because the number 127 occurs only in four places in scripture. Now, if you have watched my other videos, you know that God very often warns mankind not only through biblical numerology, but also contemporary events. But how did he tie in those 127 people killed on the Pakistan plane crash with Bible numerology? Yeah, I have no idea.
0: You you lost me a long time ago, uh, Mr. Third Eagle.
1: In order to give a very significant warning to President Barack Obama. Let's look at the very first time the number 127 appears in the Bible. Way back in Genesis chapter 23, verse number 1. And Sarah was 127 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing it. Yeah, Sarah, according to Genesis 23, verse 1, she was definitely 127 years old. That's quite a warning.
1: The most important numbers which prophets use in end times apocalyptic literature to indicate the end times are the numbers 4, 7, and 12. That's because they are the last numbers in a time sequence. The fourth week in a month is the last week.
0: You you sure that this message got delivered to Barack Obama. You know, that God really made it this hard to figure out the message.
1: The seventh day in a week is the last day. And the twelfth month in a year is the last month. Now, in Sarah's case, the 127th year was the last year in her life. Yes.
0: Hence, she lived 127 years.
1: Also, the number 127 is a combination of two end times numbers. The numbers 12 and the number 7.
0: Okay, how come it's not the number 1 and the number 27? How do you know for sure that it's 12 and 7?
1: And that number 127 appears four times in Scripture. Yeah. So now let's look at the first time. The number 127 appears in the book of Esther.
0: Okay, I'm sure this will help shed a lot of
1: light on this message that God was sending to Obama. Now it came to pass, in the days of Ahasuerus, who reigned from India even to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces.
0: Yep, that's what it says, Esther chapter 1, verse 1, that... (laughs) Ahusuerus reigned over 127 provinces.
1: It's there. This is absolutely biblical, yes. So we see this very important number, 127, in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the book of Esther.
0: Can I ask, like, the obvious question? I mean, so, I mean, Genesis 23, right? shouldn't we just take it as God meant to tell us and let us know that Sarah lived, well, 127 years? And then in this Esther 1-1 passage, don't you think it's there just to let us know that, well, this Asawaris guy, that he reigned over, you know, 127 provinces? That's just what it means.
1: You know what I mean? Now let's look at chapter number 8. Verse number nine, then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day thereof. It's interesting because 23 is another end times number.
0: <laughs> Talk about missing the forest because of a tree, man.
1: Because it is an expression that is two thirds of point six six six, the number of the Antichrist. <laughs>
0: Somebody needs to take the video camera away from Grandpa. That's just all I'm saying.
1: And it was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded, unto the Jews, and to the satraps, and the governors and princes of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, 127 provinces unto every province, according to its own writing.
0: Yeah. How much you want to bet it just means that there were 127 provinces?
1: The story of Esther is how the evil Haman, who was a prefigure of the Antichrist, plotted to kill all the Jews. Yeah. This became known as the Feast of Purim in Jewish history because the Haman's plot was thwarted. The name Purim comes from lots, because they were very superstitious back in Persia in those days and they wanted the most auspicious time to kill all the Jews, and they decided it by casting lots. Now, what is significant in the book of Esther is that Queen Esther persuades King Ahasuerus to turn the tables on the enemies of the Jews, and he allows them to defend themselves, and in fact, the Jews make a great slaughter of their enemies.
0: So that's how the Pakistani plane crash was a message to barack obama to let them defend the the israel israelis defend themselves
1: it's interesting that the persian empire today would be the nation of iran esther chapter 9 verse 30 and he sent the letters unto all the jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. So all four times, for the number 127 appears in Scripture, it has end times significance. The death of Sarah, and the three times that number appears in the book of Esther.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to crawl out of my skin here. Okay, so, um, wow. um, So God apparently wants to send a message to Barack Obama. Hmm. By s- causing that plane to crash and 127 people to die, but you—you <laughs> you have to have a PhD in the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse's version of biblical numerology in order to decipher the me- message. Yeah, I, I, yeah, William, I'm pretty convinced that nobody in the state department, nobody who works signal ops for the United States of America, nobody who works for the white house transcribed this message and delivered it to Barack Obama to let him know that God was basically trying to communicate to him, let Israel defend itself. I don't think that memo ended up on Obama's desk. I'm, you know, I know it's, risky to state it so confidently, but I'm 99.99999% sure. I I probably, here's the deal, you know, there's probably some biblical, numerological, eschatological significance to the number I just stated there, but (laughs) I'll leave it for people who are experts to decipher what it all means. Oh, man, again, talk about... Missing the forest because of a tree. Good night. <sighs> Moving along. Now, I don't have any music to introduce this next segment. In fact, we're running long here today. By the way, we're going to do two good sermons in, during our sermon review time when we get to it. But I'm running a little bit long in the first hour today. Um, Bishop Randy White. This is the uh, the ex-husband of Paula White. Um, you know, he, the two of them. What was the name of their church uh, without walls out there in Florida? Anyway, he's been he he's been tapped. His shoulder has been tapped to come in and have him defend. Um, Pastrix Dana, uh, the one who was rebuked by um, the Calvary Chapel pastor that we played you know the audio from yesterday. So here's um Pastrix Dana um introducing randy white to um to, and listen to what he has to say because this is just rather interesting and disturbing all at the same time and by the way who made him a bishop but anyway here listen in
2: in florida we're just so grateful and thankful uh that there are men and women of god who stand upon the word of god not just in a pulpit but everywhere they go and who he is in a pulpit is who he is even in the streets and the highways and the byways. He is a sincere
0: man of God who loves God with all his heart. And I want him to bless you. To- he's kind of slumming. I mean, was looking at what he's wearing. It's like, wow, yeah, yeah, he wasn't he, he, you know, he, when he and Paula were together, they were, you know, kind of, you know, the jet setter, you know, type. I mean, he looked like he just came off a construction site.
2: Is that all right? I want him to greet you in the name of the Lord tonight.
0: Here's Randy White now. He's got the microphone.
4: You may be seated. psalmist said, I will bless
0: the Lord
4: at what time? All times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. He said, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Can you give the Lord one more praise?
0: Come on, clap your hands. and Give him a praise. I mean, give God a high five, you know. Yay, way to go, God. Yeah.
4: I greet you in the name of the Lord, and it's certainly good to see Mark Payne with us tonight, the organ player and our drummer. God bless you, brother. Give him a good God bless
0: you. Is that is a Hammond organ that they're playing? It's not, you know, it sounds like a baseball game when they're playing that, you know. We came to support Pastor Dana tonight. She gave me a
4: word a few weeks ago that literally changed my life. And I want to tell you that she is a prophet of God. She rests on...
0: Un- really? <laughs> yeah, I should believe she's a prophet of God because you say so. The fact that she calls herself Pastor Dana, since there are no female pastors, uh, you know, that's right, the Bible doesn't uh, allow for that, tells me she ain't really a prophet of God. You're a tremendous an anointing of God. Uh, anointed to do what exactly?
4: And any time the anointing shows up, the devil shows up.
0: Oh, yeah. See, that's how this goes. So anytime the anointing shows up, well, the devil shows up. And who was the devil that showed up?
4: And there's no worse of a demon than a religious demon.
0: Yeah, the Pastor Scott Rodriguez of Calvary Chapel, who called people to the gospel and told everybody there that Pastor Dana was a false prophet and not teaching correctly. Somebody say amen. No, I won't say amen to that.
4: I've fought religious devils all my life.
0: Yeah, yeah, those religious devils. And guess what? My angels,
4: in the blood of Jesus, always wins. Uh-huh. So I heard there was a little fight going on, so we came to declare war on the devil tonight. Somebody shout amen. That no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Every
0: word spoken. It, basically, this is a shore everybody up, create the impression using his, you know, bishop aura, you know, that he, he can lend the credibility to Pastrix Dana to let everybody know don't listen to that Scott Rodriguez pastor guy. He's a religious demon. So fall on dead ground. I came to
4: expect miracles, signs, and wonders tonight. I'm believing God to do mighty, mighty things tonight. And I want you to know that the battle is not ours, but the battle is the Lord's. And we give God all the praise and the glory for what he's about to do in our life. And somebody shout amen. Amen. God bless you.
0: Mm Hmm. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, you've got to throw down from... The ex husband of Paula White. Now, this, in part, motivated me today to uh, write a blog post. You can find this at my blog, Letter of Mark, M A R Q U E L E T T E R O F M A R Q U E dot U S, Letter of Mark dot U S, and the the name of the blog post that I wrote today is called "Spiritual Maturity as Defined by Scripture." Spiritual maturity as defined by Scripture. Now. It's I I do not want to pass along any information as if it's God's information without it really truly coming from a correct reading of God's word. So, here's the question I ask: How does the Bible define spiritual maturity? Okay, that's see this is a good question. I mean, with all these people out there basically claiming to be spiritually mature while at the same time poo-pooing and putting down and uh, casting aspersions upon the concept of sound biblical doctrine, I thought it would be beneficial to, you know, to go here and, you know, and take a look at what the Bible says. So here are some pertinent Bible passages that discuss this important topic. Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 14. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, The evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's what that's what the job of pastors, you know, to build up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. Okay, now I'm going to pause there for a second. So in this run-up to verse 14, Paul here is setting a contrast, creating a contrast by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit between spiritual maturity as opposed to spiritual infancy or childhood, if you would. So the, the idea here, so how do you know then that you're no longer a child? Okay, well, here's the answer. Okay, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Ha! Huh. So according to Ephesians chapter four, verses eleven through fourteen, maturity. One of the marks of maturity, then is not being deceived by winds of strange doctrine that come about as a result of human cunning and craftiness vis-a-vis, well, Pastrix Dana. Hebrews 13, 7-9 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have been, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Uh Aha. So here, Hebrews 13, seven through nine is admonishing Christians to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, Again, this biblical marks of maturity, if you would. So then I continue. Notice that spiritual maturity, according to scripture, is marked by the ability to not be carried or led away by strange winds of false doctrine, but by being so thoroughly grounded in God's word that you are not deceived. Put another way. One of the clearest signs that a person is spiritually immature or even spiritually dead is the fact that they succumb to and are led away by every strange wind of false doctrine. So here's another thought to consider from Scripture regarding spiritual maturity. Pastors, according to Scripture, not me, according to Scripture, are to be models of spiritual maturity in both life and doctrine. Notice it's not just life. And notice it's not just doctrine. Pastors are to be models of spiritual maturity in both life and doctrine. So here are the qualifications of a pastor as laid out in the pastoral epistle, Titus. Pay close attention to what the Holy Spirit reveals regarding the vital importance of sound doctrine and how those who will not abide by sound doctrine and teach falsely are, quote, detestable, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, you think of pastor here, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine." Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us that's titus chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 8 so i ask a simple question based on what these passages from scripture reveal are you spiritually mature or are you immature? Notice it's life and doctrine. Mature believers are ones who are so firmly grounded and know God's word so that they are not led astray by strange winds of doctrine, by false teachers and deceivers who well are teaching falsely in order to earn a living shameful gain you know you know fleece the flock make merchandise of Christ's people so are you spiritually mature or immature i think it's a good question to ask yourself but more importantly how about your pastor does he stand for sound biblical doctrine does he model spiritual maturity in life and doctrine, in life as well as how he handles God's Word, or does he cast aspersions on sound doctrine, play fast and loose with the Scriptures, twist it and teach things that he ought not to teach? If he does that, if he's not a guy who stands for, defends sound doctrine and rebukes those who contradict sound doctrine, well, he's not spiritually mature. He has not met the qualifications of somebody who's to be in the pulpit because pastors are to model spiritual maturity in both life and doctrine. Something to consider. All right, looking at our time here, I'm going to save the Kevin DeYoung piece until tomorrow. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to go into our second break. And when we come back, we're going to listen to two very good sermons that I you know, I wanted to listen to some good sermons today tomorrow we got a bad sermon but um, I wanted to listen to some good sermons today so if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith you can do so my email address at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook it's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or you can follow me on Twitter my name there at Christian. we'll be right back
2: You're listening to Byron Christian
4: Radio.
0: <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, pirate christian radio that web address again is pirate christian forward slash cheap thank you for your support
3: you spend some serious time staring at a digital screen probably around eight hours a day there's work video games surfing the web and every other function of life on all our devices Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive wanna go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For
0: more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of fighting for the faith. We're going to take a little bit of time and hear two good sermons, both of them coming from Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. My former pastors, Pastor Ron Hodel and Jeremy Rohde, in that order. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, dos sermons, comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Sermon number one, or uno, is uh, entitled, Bear Fruit, Law or Gospel? This is uh, preached by Pastor Ron Hodel, and the text... Is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I'll read those here in a second. The second sermon is by Pastor Jeremy Rody who was the co-pastor there with Pastor Hodel. And the name of his sermon is You Did Not Choose Me. And this one is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, 9 through 17. Nice to hear, you know, sermons back to back by Guys who skillfully handle the biblical texts, and they're working through the same chapter. All right, let me uh, kill the music there. And uh, let me start off then by reading the text for the first sermon, uh, Bear Fruit, Law or Gospel? Great question to ask, by the way. And uh, the, uh, the text is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, which reads, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Ouch. <clears throat> Just thinking about that. Anyway, anyway, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, here is Pastor Ron Hodel and his sermon on this text entitled, Bear Fruit, Law or Gospel? In the name of Jesus, amen.
5: Please be seated. Ah, finally at last, a sanctification text. They've been telling us we need to be preaching more sanctification sermons. And so at last, here it is in black and white. Bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Prove yourself one of Jesus' disciples by busying yourself with good works. You can't deny it. It's in red letter text. Jesus said it. No. Jesus commands it. Or does he? It's true. In our text today, we have commands and we have promises. And it's easy, even tempting, to get them mixed up with one another. There is a command in our text today. But it's not To bear fruit. Bearing fruit is what Jesus promises is going to happen if his command is kept. So, what is his command? It's clear as a bell in verse 4 Abide in me. Abide in me. When that is done, when you abide in Jesus, you will bear fruit. Jesus promises. With all the talk about fruit in these verses, it's easy to think about what we have to do. What what do we have to do to please God? And the answer is, bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, pastor, you know, sin less. Be more holy. Do all the things God wants you to do. And none of the things that God doesn't want you to do. Because if you're not bearing fruit, you will be cut off, thrown into the fire, and burned. Serious business, this bearing fruit. And so we try. We really better try with all of our might. We try. to Clean up our lives. We try to fly straight as we can. We try to stay on that straight and narrow. To not do the thou shalt nots. And do the thou shalts. We try to obey all the commands. We try really hard to bear all kinds of good fruit. But what happens when we try? Two things. Either... We become proud of the progress we think we're making, or we despair because we're not really making any progress at all. No progress at all because no matter how hard we try, deep down, we know we're just not cutting it. One way or the other, or whips on between the two. Feeling really great about ourselves one day, and the next day plunged into utter despair, our progress, all of our fantastic progress, wiped out instantly by some rotten indiscretion we swore we'd never do again, and then ugh, we catch ourselves doing it again. In reality, it doesn't really matter. Either way, we end up in the same place, apart From Christ. Apart from Christ, thinking that we can do it. Of course with a little spiritual bump from Jesus, you know. We wouldn't want to leave that out. Or thinking that it can't be done at all. And that's what happens when you focus on the fruit. Focus on the fruit. Focus on the good works. Focus on the sanctified life. And the fruit becomes your idol. And it robs you of your life. So is the impious Pastor Hodel saying bearing fruit isn't important? Is Pastor Hodel saying that good works aren't necessary? Is Pastor Hodel saying there's no such thing as a sanctified life? Has Pastor Hodel become so despairing, so cynical after 30 plus years in the ministry that he's just plain given up altogether? No. (laughs) Bearing good fruit is important. Jesus talks about it six times in these few verses. Right before his death, he's talking about it. Bearing fruit is important to Jesus, and not just bearing it, but bearing an abundance of fruit. So if it's important to Jesus, it better be important to us. But only in the right context. Remember, bearing fruit isn't the command here. It's the promise. It's a promise that's meant to comfort us. It's a promise that's meant to encourage us in this life. Abide in Christ and he in you and you will produce fruit that is pleasing to your Father in heaven. That's a promise. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Another way to say this is producing fruit isn't so much a matter of what you do, but of who you are. So the question is, who are you? Now you could answer that question in a whole lot of ways. You could talk about what you do and define yourself by that. Or who you're married to. Or where you came from. Who your parents were. What your hobbies are. But boil it all the way down to who you truly are and you've already answered that question this morning. Of all the things you can truly say about yourself, one thing you can say is, who am I? I'm a sinner. You can say that about yourself and I can certainly say that about myself. Sinners. Not just in what we do, but in what we are. We're not sinners because we sin. And if only we would get rid of the sins, then we'd no longer be sinners. No. We sin because we're sinners through and through. And the fruit that sinners just naturally produce is bad, rotten, polluted fruit. Which is, in reality, worse than bearing no fruit at all. But when sinful branches are grafted onto a good and holy true vine, when he abides in you and you in him, something happens. You are a forgiven sinner. And through that forgiveness, you become something altogether different, something other than what you were before. You become a child of God not because of what you've done, but because of what your Savior has done for you. He offered His life in your place. So you see, it's not about what you do, but about what He did for you. Baptized into Him, you died to sin with Him. And to a new life, you were raised with Him. You've been born again as a living branch on a true vine, a good branch bearing the good fruits of repentance and faith because of who you have been grafted into. Jesus is saying all this the night before his crucifixion. Jesus isn't giving his disciples a bunch more commands here to fulfill. He's teaching them the significance of what is taking place right before their very eyes. He's teaching them what his crucifixion means. Not just death for him, but life for us. And now, because of who you are now in Jesus, you will bear fruit Jesus promises it will happen just as naturally as it happened that you bore bad fruit when you weren't in Christ. You will bear fruit because your heavenly Father will see to it. He's the vine dresser. He doesn't just graft us into his son and then leave us on our own. Grafted to Jesus, he continues to care for you just as the vine dresser cares for the branches that he or she has grafted into the rootstock. Oh, and another thing, think about it. Branches, cuttings, don't just one day figure out that they need to be grafted to rootstock. They just lay there. The vine dresser does that. And so where and when were you grafted to the true vine? When you accepted Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior? When you cleaned up your life? When you started doing more good works than bad ones? When you, when you, nothing. It happened when he, it happened when you, like a lifeless branch, were grafted to the vine, and like a branch, you had no say in it at all. If you think about it, He wouldn't leave something that important up to you anyway. You'd never do it if it was left up to you. Grafted to Christ in the holy waters of baptism, He now, he now feeds you with the body and blood of His Son that you would grow in your faith and be strengthened and produce the fruits that He desires. And when the challenges and the struggles and the troubles of this world drag you down, he lifts you up in his strength and in his peace. Oh, not that the troubles go away, but even in them, he assures you that he is with you always and he will never leave you. He waters you with the forgiveness that Christ speaks into your ears so that you will grow healthy and not wither under the heat and the oppression of this dark world, the devil, and our sins. When you become a wild branch, when you become a wild branch, overconfident in yourself, striking out on your own, not heeding the words of our Lord, he prunes you back that you would repent and rely on him and him alone. He lovingly ties us and binds us up with his word of truth that we would grow and produce, not when and how you want to, but in line with his good will and favor. And when you're threatened by false or wrong beliefs or the disease of worldly wisdom seeks to pull you away from him, His grace and truth keep you in him and him in us that you bear much fruit. And so our Father is pleased, not because we did it all and he didn't have to do anything, but because his love and care, his word and sacraments, his grace and forgiveness because his work has produced in us exactly what he wanted produced. Fruit. His fruit. Not our fruit that we bring to him, but his fruit that he produces through us. Maybe it doesn't seem that way to you in your life. Maybe others, even yourself, are telling you, get busy, dear Christian, start producing fruit. Maybe you can't see any fruit. Maybe you're expecting the wrong kind of fruit. Maybe you're looking in all the wrong places for fruit. Well, you aren't the judge. He is. So rather than relying on what you see, rely on what you hear. Rely on His promise. His promise that those who abide in Him, that's you, bear much fruit. What kinds of good fruit are you told that you should be producing? Should you be giving enough money to build hospital wings? Should you be volunteering 20 hours here at church each week? Should you be doing this, that, or the other thing? You fill in the blank. Not that those are bad fruit. And if that's what he is producing through you, great, bear that fruit. But what kind of fruit has he told us he desires to produce in us? For that answer, we can go to Scripture. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Well, those things may look small to the world. They may look unimpressive to, to us, but not to God. These fruits of faith are exactly what he wants to produce in you. And he has promised that he will. So do I just sit back and do nothing? No, are you kidding? This is a sanctification sermon, remember? You have a life. Go live it. You have a new life. Go live it. A life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all the ways that that good fruit manifests themselves in our lives. Loving the unlovable. Helping the homeless lady with what a latte might cost you. Speaking a word of encouragement to somebody who's down. Not repaying bad behavior toward you with resentment and anger, but repaying evil with good. Standing up for someone who can't stand up for themselves from babies in a womb to children in Africa, to someone who's had a stroke, to those who have lost their voice in this deaf world, welcoming the outcast, visiting the lonely, helping those in need, speaking of your Savior when the opportunity arises, lifting up other people in prayer. By this my Father will be, is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Not that bearing this fruit makes us disciples, but that we are disciples and proof of it is we're bearing his fruit, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But then finally there's that credit thing, isn't there? Getting recognition and reward for all of your work. It's built right into us. Worried about getting credit for your fruit and your works? Think again. If they're your works and your fruit you've produced, you don't want the credit for them because they're the fruit and the works of fallen man. Bad fruit, sin-filled works, and the wages for that fruit isn't so good. Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus, our Savior, took our credit for our sinful lives and died for it all. Worried about getting credit for good works and good fruit? Don't worry about it. You shouldn't get the credit for it anyway. They're not yours. They're His. But that's okay. Because although that part of Ourselves, that fallen part of ourselves, wants credit and keeps score. The truth is, we don't need any credit anymore. The kingdom ours remaineth. We've already got everything. By our good fruit, our Father is glorified. We're simply being who we are now. Sons, daughters, Children, branches grafted to the true vine, abiding in Christ, and He in us through the waters of his forgiveness, the word of his truth and his body and blood that feeds and strengthens us, his life in us, and so our life in him, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen
0: Amen. Mm. Mm, 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 mm you gotta love that gospel preaching you gotta love it. right text rightly handled, proper distinction of law and gospel, and then Christ and him crucified for our sins placarded for you for me. Good stuff, all right, Sermon number two is by pastor Jeremy Rody, and it's from the next section of the Gospel of John chapter fifteen verses nine through 17, and uh, let me read this for you here in the uh, English Standard Version before we get to Pastor Rody's sermon. Here's what it says. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." But I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Okay, here is Pastor Jeremy Rody and his sermon on this text, entitled, You Did Not Choose Me.
6: You did not choose me. But I chose you. These words of Jesus don't make it onto many headstones at the cemetery. They're not the kind of words that get embroidered on pillows or framed and hung in the doorways of Christian homes. You could thumb through a thousand cards at your local Christian bookstore and not find a single one that says Dear special person, you are very special but you did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose you. No, these words of Christ aren't terribly popular among his followers. Sola Scriptura makes for a nice slogan, but these words of Jesus put it to the test. There's a reason, of course, why these words of Jesus, these sweet words, can turn our stomachs sour. They're an affront to what we Christians cherish most about ourselves. What makes you to differ from another? What makes you to differ from the greasy TV politicians, the greedy corporate types, murderous Thugs, adulterous prostitutes, and people of that heinous other political party. What makes you to differ? Why, you have chosen faithfulness. You've chosen love. You've chosen Jesus. You did not choose me. I chose you. Jesus' sermon had been so easy to swallow right up until this point. What he said so eloquently with the vine and the branches, he had now taught with the plainest words. If you abide in the vine, you will bear much fruit. If you abide in my love, you will love one another. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How do you abide in his love? He tells you, if you keep my commandments, my word, then you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that you might be crushed again under the weight of a law that you can't fulfill. No. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Our Lord Jesus gives us this commandment not to burden us so that we have to go huffing and sighing and puffing and worrying about how we don't love enough. He gives us this word so that his joy will live in us. If the branch would bear fruit, it must abide in the vine. And if you would love one another, then you must abide in the words and love of Jesus himself. For all true fruit and all true love flow from Jesus. They come from Jesus through you to others. And by this he promises that he will put his joy in you. So you're struggling to love someone. You're struggling to love a couple someones. If you would love others, then look not to them. Because in the end, what you'll see is that they are sinful and quite unlovable. If you would love others, then don't look at yourself either. Because in the end, you'll see that you are sinful and unloving. If you would love others, then Jesus, our Lord, would point you to himself. Look to Christ. It is he who lays down his life, both for the unlovable and for the unloving. Both for them and for you. Jesus says that we are to love others as he loved us. We are to love others as he loved us on Calvary's cross. And therefore, when he says, abide in my love, he means abide in the love that I have shown when I laid down my life for you. When Jesus sheds his blood for you on the cross, this is the fount of all Christian love. This is the love that he calls you to abide in. Abide in my cross. Then you will know you are forgiven. Then you will be filled with joy and love one another. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that is what you are. You are my friends, Jesus says. You are my friends if you do what I command you, if you abide in my word. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Listen to what Jesus is saying. You are no longer slaves. You are his friends. But pastor, you don't understand. I'm a sinner. I neglect Jesus. He calls himself your friend. He is the sinner's friend. Well, up to this point in Jesus' sermon, everything has gone just fine. And most of Christendom would agree. Joy, friendship, love, these are wonderful things. If we've been reading along, our highlighters have been highlighting, our pens have been underlining. We like this. We've been feeling truly inspired. But then, out of the blue, come those words. Jesus goes and says, You did not choose me. I chose you. Here is where the underlining and highlighting has a tendency to stop. Here is where the editor of the devotional booklet chooses to end his reading with the previous verse. Here is where the voice is singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Stop you did not choose me, I chose you. And here is where many Christians find that the gospel they've been taught is at odds with their Lord's words. Sola gratia, grace alone, is a nice slogan, but if it doesn't include everything, it means nothing. If salvation requires something of us, our decision, the work of our free will, then salvation is no longer a free gift. The sola isn't really a sola. The gratia isn't really grace. How often we think the most important parts of Christianity is that we decide for ourselves and choose whom we will serve. That's not reality. Not according to Jesus. Jesus says that we have not chosen him, but that he has chosen us. Make no mistake, your old Adam doesn't like this one bit. And the old Adam in you is also a theologian. And the old Adam can't understand these words of Jesus because he can't stand these words of Jesus. If Jesus has chosen you, and if he has done everything for you, well, then there's nothing left for your old Adam to boast in. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? If you speak in the tongue of angels and men, but not King James, let me paraphrase. A flood, a deluge of ice-cold baptismal water on all our boasting, especially any boast in our deciding or choosing Jesus. For you did not choose me, but I chose you, our Lord says. Who is it that makes you differ from another? It is I. I make you differ from another. It is I who give you everything you have. It is I who give you your faith and sustain your faith in you. There is nothing left for the old Adam to boast in. In fact, there is nothing left for the old Adam to do but die. That is reality. Before God ever laid the foundation of this, our world, he chose us to be his children. Long before you were ever even born, Long before you did any good or evil, Christ chose you, a sinner, to be his friend. And he chose to lay down his life for you. Before you ever believed, while you were still dead in your trespasses, the Holy Spirit chose you. He chose to give you faith and to raise you from death to life. He did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus says. And there are no sweeter words than these. You Adams and Eves, who have chosen forbidden fruit instead of me, I have chosen you. You have chosen to hide from me in the shadows, But in the cool of the day, I have sought you and found you. You have chosen fig leaves and excuses, but I have chosen to lay down my own life for you, to clothe your nakedness in the skins of my righteousness. You Davids and Bathshebas who have chosen lust instead of me, I have chosen you. You have chosen to hide your sin even with Uriah's blood, but I have chosen to hide your sin with my own precious blood. You have chosen deception, but I have chosen to give you the truth, to bring you to repentance, to grant you forgiveness to give you a clean heart and a right spirit within. You lambs, you have chosen to wander. You coins, you have chosen to be lost. You prodigal sons, you have chosen sin over your father's house. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you. I have chosen to love you. I have chosen to fill you with my joy. I have chosen to call you friend and to lay down my life for you. Long before you could even fathom what was happening, I baptized you. And when you forgot me, I sought you and I came to you. And even now, as you sit here, feeling the law of sin at work in your members, I choose you, and I call you to my table, and make you flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood, so that your body of death will be put away forever, and you will be risen in your body just as I am risen in mine. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy
0: Spirit, amen. Amen. Yep, can't add to that. So I'll just sign off. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can my email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.